Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, intelligence historian Betsy Smoot talks about her biography of a multifaceted innovator, military man, and cryptologist. The book, Parker Hitt, The Father of American Military Cryptology, was published by the University Press of Kentucky in March 2022. Betsy Smoot's conversation with fellow bio member Jennifer Skoog began with her defining cryptology. Cryptology was a word coined by William Friedman. It didn't really exist in Hitt's time, but it broadly refers to the work required to extract information from secret or hidden communications or to protect those communications. So it involves aspects of signals intelligence, which includes breaking codes and ciphers of adversaries and communication security, which is protecting your own codes and ciphers to protect your own communications. And it sort of encompasses all the other things you need to do that, like collect the signal, process the signal, the whole field that places like the National Security Agency and other government organizations do today. Right, I'm sure. So tell me about the journey of finding Parker Hitt as a subject. Well, I was an analyst at the National Security Agency for... 24 years before I joined their Center for Cryptologic History in 2007. And my first week on the job was attending the biennial symposium on cryptologic history. And the NSA historian, Dr. David Hatch, gave a talk where he mentioned Parker Hip. Now, I'm an avid genealogist, and I'd been doing genealogy for decades, and my husband has a hit line. And my first thing was, I've never heard of this guy, even though I've been a cryptologist for 24 years, and I wonder if my husband's related to him. And of course, he is. They're fourth cousins, twice removed. And I started digging in to say, why don't we know more about Parker Hitt and his importance? So I kept digging as a genealogist looking for birth, marriage, death records, and I couldn't find out where the hits were buried. And I knew they had lived in Front Royal, Virginia. And there was a former colleague of mine who lived near there. And I was like, Tom, I can't find these people. Where are they buried? I've walked the cemetery. I can't find them. And he went to the local heritage society, the Warren County Heritage Society. And by chance, the then director, I'm talking 2009 at this point, had five years earlier consulted with some people who had a trunk load of Hitt's papers. And it turns out these folks were the friends and inheritors of Hitt's daughter and had inherited the house and inherited the papers. And the Heritage Society arranged for me to meet them. And they allowed me to use this trunk full of documents in the Heritage Society and allowed me to scan them. So I had immediate access to material that anybody just dreams about when they write a biography, unpublished material, diaries, letters, wonderful things, some official papers, medals, all sorts of things. And I was hooked at that point, and I knew I needed to do something with Parker Hitt. It's so serendipitous. In the introduction and throughout the book, I felt (laughs) an admiration and a jealousy at the same time 
because I had never heard of this guy and he was in with Eisenhower and more. And yet he's sort of this obscure guy who played such a huge role in our military history. Yeah, that's what it was amazing to me that even cryptologists who knew of his book, The Manual for Solution of Military Ciphers, didn't know a lot about him except where he's mentioned later in life by William Friedman, who's sort of the greatest American cryptologist of the 20th century, and only knew him as a peripheral figure in cryptology. And he was really much more significant. And it's amazing to find somebody who was so well known in their life, who throughout their life had newspaper articles written about him from a very young age, from his deeds in the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century, had completely vanished from history. So I really felt very lucky. And I did actually write a little paper on the serendipity of doing things like this. And as it turned out, as I did work on HIT, I did a lot of work for my work at the Center for Cryptologic History on HIT, on his cryptologic work. And I made sure he got into the NSA Hall of Honor. But it became clear that this was going to be a biography of a life that had huge portions of it, which were non-cryptologic. And this couldn't legitimately be a government publication and be a biography at the same time, you know, because we, our mission was to focus on cryptologic work. So I came to an agreement with work and I could not get a contract for the book until after I left work. And I left them with a monograph on hits cryptologic work. So finally, when I retired, I started back to work. I'd been collecting things, of course, for years because hit was everywhere. It's amazing because I was working on another book for work, which is finally going to come out this fall on World War I cryptology. And going through those archival files at the National Archives, HIT had a very distinctive signature. And every time I open a folder, there's HIT, there's HIT again, here's HIT again. And I just built up a whole repository of HIT work in addition to the private papers I'd found and other sources. But it's amazing that somebody was very important and he's not really mentioned even by his contemporaries. It's interesting how you sort of tiptoed this line of your career while building this database of information on this person that you're definitely going to write a biography on. And I just, as we're talking, I thought about how were you able to write about him without violating some of those privacy concerns at the NSA? I worked very closely with my boss, And we set up the lines and I was producing material on hit for work, but I also kept a spreadsheet of my time and my money and the research trips that were paid for by work. And we worked out a deal where what I gave them as a result was payment for the work that I had done on their dime and their time. And the other stuff was mine to write about. Now, of course, this book isn't making any money. Uh, So (laughs) academic press, small military history series, I'm not going to at all violate any legalities because I'm not going to recoup my research costs at all, but that's fine. So what kind of access did you have to the family that inherited his papers? I worked closely with them. They let the Heritage Society keep the trunk of papers for a period of time. And I think I made 10 visits down to Front Royal over the period of four or five months, scanning and photographing material while they kept it at the Heritage Society. But then I worked closely with them. I had a tour of the house 
And they still had a lot of hit stuff. And I worked back and forth and, you know, I did a little oral history with the people who live in the house were the daughter and son-in-law of the friends of Mary Lou Hitt. And I spoke to Dave and Evie Mormon and they told me their memories of Mary Lou. They never knew Parker. So it was a baseline to try to track down some of the stories they had heard about Parker and tie it together. And the family story is that the hits woke up one morning in World War II and Eisenhower was sprawled out on the couch after having spent the night doing something. But we can't prove that at all. They the hits were not in Front Royal much of the time in World War II. And Eisenhower wasn't there either. And if he came down during his time in the White House, it's not in any records that the Eisenhower Library can find for me. So I think that is a memory that probably extended back to the 1920s or 1930s and uh, got superimposed with the idea that this was a World War II event. Fascinating. So what were some of the other things that you found surprising in the archives? Well, what I found interesting was that Hit was a lot more involved with World War I cryptology than anybody knew. Even David Kahn, who had interviewed him in the 1960s and had been given a collection of his papers in the 1960s by Hit's daughter, which are now in the Kahn collection at the National Cryptologic Museum. Even David Kahn, I don't think, realized how involved Hit was because Hit sort of underplayed that. He did not consider that his career. But looking through the documents, it became clear to me that he was the glue that held three organizations in France together and made the connection between them and made sure it ran smoothly and gave them ideas. And he helped design the logs that the signal collectors used when they were listening to radio transmissions, gave input on that, gave input on codes and ciphers. So he was really critical. And that was a surprise because nobody, even at NSA, realized how involved he had been. This World War I is so forgotten. We have a few little touch points in history of World War I that people tend to remember. And they remember the Zimmerman telegram when they think about cryptology and World War I, but they don't really think of the huge effort that was underway, both on the home front and in France. It was also exciting to discover that Mary Lou Hitt, Hitt's daughter, was a code girl during World War II and had worked at Arlington Hall. And it shouldn't have been surprising because, you know, they knew the Freedmans well, and Friedman was not the boss, but he was the chief analyst of the effort. And of course, if Mary Lou wanted to work there, Hitt and Friedman were going to talk, and then she's at Arlington Hall. And she was good at her job, but didn't want to stay. But it was nice to be able to place her in that piece, you know, that Liza Mundy so well documented in her book, Code Girls, which I had the privilege of providing her information <laughs> I had kept for years. At NSA and the Center for Cryptologic History, people always had contacted us saying, I want to know what my grandmother did during the war. I want to know what my aunt did the war. It was my job to keep the list of the people who contacted us about their relatives who had been at Arlington Hall. And so when Liza came to the center asking for direction, I was able to give her actually what we had to do. I had to contact all the people and say, is it okay if I give your name to this author who's working on Co-Girls? So that was a really exciting thing to be involved with. And Mary Lou was the only child of the Hit family, but her parent, I mean, both Parker and Genevieve were in cryptology. In fact, Genevieve was the first female to provide information to the U.S. government. Okay, so she wasn't paid, but still, like, yeah. And I guess that's 
that's surprising <laughs> to me as well, because we knew from David Kahn's book that she had worked in the code room in San Antonio, but it became really clear as I'm reading the material and going back through Kahn's papers that she's actually doing the job. And there are letters in the National Archives which talk about her actually doing the job as the first woman breaking codes and ciphers for the government. She did a good job, but she also did not think of it as her career. She was something she could do her bit for the war. Yeah. And Hit also had women working for him on the mm. front lines in France, decoding information, which I found fascinating because you knew that women, quote, played a part, but he really was the person who got women... Yeah. It was really his idea to bring over the female telephone operators. I guess it's a group idea and he made it happen and he looked after them. And you may have read as well uh, Elizabeth Cobb's book, The Hello Girls, which is another serendipitous thing that happened to me. One day I was at the National Archives at College Park and we had summer interns from the military academies and I would give them a day at the archives to show them how to do research and this woman was watching me and she said, when you finished helping that young man, will you help me find something? And I'm just like, well, I actually don't work here. However, what are you researching? And if I, and she was looking for signal core records pertaining to the hello girls and it was Elizabeth Cobbs. And so I built a friendship with Elizabeth who helped me get in touch with some of the descendants, especially Grace Banker's granddaughter, uh, who allowed me to use some material they had on hit. So a lot of serendipity involved with this book. Yeah, you were sort of in the right place at the right time all the time. And it it's almost like, so was hit, you know, like yeah. <laughs> he just seemed to be where he was needed. So presumably, you know, much of his military successes are classified. And yet you were able to paint this picture of his family before he was born, all the way up until after his death, you've painted this robust picture. um, But what were some of the questions that remain unanswered? In other words, what were some of the challenges of your research process Mm -hmm. to answer some of these questions that might have been classified? Actually, nothing that Parker Hitt did is classified any longer and has not been for a long time. So that was not a problem. That was very straightforward. It's all very outdated technology at this point. So that was a burden I didn't have I never feel like I fully understood why he quit Purdue after his junior year in college and joined up. You know, I can postulate that it was for the excitement of it, that it seemed the thing to do in 1898 as a young man who was interested in the outdoors and a good hunter and to go and fight for Cuban independence, which is not what he ever ended up doing. But he never really specified that and what would have happened if he hadn't joined the military. There was no real reason for him to have joined the military. Nobody anticipated he was going to join the military. So that was interesting. And then I guess if he had stayed in aviation, would he? He was very tall for aviation. So I don't know if he would have been able to stay in aviation if after that brief experience he had in 1910 and 1911. you know, they're just little things like what did he really think about his work? What did he really think about his career prospects? He gave no sign that he aspired to be a general like so many of his contemporaries who were very gung-ho. And I've been doing some reading. A near contemporary, Hugh Drum, 
who was the chief of staff of the first army in World War I and then was in contention to be the army chief of staff in the 1940s. He was a year younger than Hitt. His father was in the military, so he was given a special commission at a young age to join up. So he was a year ahead of Hitt in the military. They had sort of parallel experiences. Neither of them went to a military academy, but Drum was very career focused and driven by how would this job affect my career and how do I get to know the right people. Hit just seems a lot more easygoing. And that was really interesting to me because I, so many military histories and military biographies you read really focus on the military activities of the person and what campaigns they were in and how they fought. And I think mine is a little bit different because I'm trying to give the picture of the whole person. And the military was his life. He loved it, but it does not seem to have been what drove him. I think Genevieve was disappointed when he did not get promoted to general, but I don't think Hit necessarily was, except for the money coming in. Yeah, you have a chapter in this book called Jack of All Trades. I thought that that just kind of summed him up in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. He, He did everything. He was an inventor and... He played the banjo and he was deeply in love with Genevieve and they were very devoted to their daughter. And mm-hmm. he was an expert in so many things. And so the title of this chapter really seemed to me to be appropriate. Yeah, I think that sort of kills his career that he is so good at so many things. People want him to do things and Hit will do it. And there's a quote from James Whitcomb Riley about Hit's father that Hit's father things to read to him and explain to him because he knows how to do everything, you know, and he knows everything or the gist of that. And Parker does too. He's always trying to make improvements. He's innovative. He doesn't like to sit still. He doesn't like to be bored. You could see maybe if he had been born 80 years later, he would have been a computer innovator and probably tinkering with the internet and doing who knows what, inventing this and that. But he was a man of his time, and he was interested in technology. He was interested in people. He enjoyed life. He enjoyed a nice drink. Uh, That was another surprise. I found a recipe for old Virginia fig. They had a lot of fig trees on their properties. I don't know if they were actually distilling fig liqueur during a prohibition or not. But He was just an interesting guy, and he was frugal, so he liked to do stuff himself. But um, I don't think... There was ever a challenge that he was given that he didn't meet. Yeah. And quite a handsome guy. Uh, I mean, they're a very good looking family. And to that end, you incorporate a lot of pictures in the center of the book. And I wonder, how did you curate which pictures to include? Oh, that was really difficult. I tried to be representative of the different periods of his life as much as possible. And there were a whole series of good pictures in the National Archives because of his rank during World War I and his position. So there were good quality pictures. And then there's this obscure little collection of pictures from the Philippines, the Parker Hit photographic collection. And I actually tried to track that down and talk to the folks at the University of Michigan where the collection is held and where they bought it from. And I talked to the guy they bought it from, and he had picked it up at a fair or someplace and on the West Coast. And these are clearly family pictures, some of them, and how they got there. And I, what I think happened, it might be that when Mary Lou was breaking up things from the house. She was just getting rid of books and papers and things because some of his books have turned up elsewhere. 
So it's really mysterious how all the good pictures of him as a baby seem to be in this Philippine photographic collection at the University of Michigan. But I just kept gathering and there was so much and I wanted to just represent them as I had come to know them, which is why I put the the picture I love of Mary Lou on a motorcycle in December 1918. And if you look very closely at that picture, you can see she stuck a doll in the handlebar of this Harley Davidson. So and I, to me, that just captured the Mary Lou I think I've come to know through documents. There's a great one that I couldn't use because the quality was just not good enough. It's a picture of Parker holding Mary Lou, who's, I don't know, six or seven months old on his knee. And she's got a radio headset on and it's plugged in listening to the radio. <laughs> so it was a great picture, you know, start him young, listening to signals intercept. Fascinating. So you seem to be in this research phase for a while. What was your writing process like then? Were you writing this whole time or did you gather all of the information mm -hmm and then start writing. Tell me about that. It's hard. I love research. I love research so much, probably too much. I was in gathering for a long time, of course, as part of my job. And I was writing journal articles and writing little tidbits for use within the workforce as well. So I had a whole little bunch of written things, but I really started outlining the book. Oh, before, you know, before I went to the contract phase, I had a good outline for the book. I had the introduction written and I knew where I wanted it to go. I had a chunk of it done. Of course, it was about twice as long as it needed to be. And it was fortuitous that the beginning of the pandemic was also when I was in the final phase of writing. So I set up a little table in our front room near the window, the breeze coming in and my little, uh, tablet and I worked away and had all my different sources and the boxes and things. So everything sorted out by chapter and um, got a credible draft. One difficulty of my process, of course, was that everything I write has to go through pre-publication review with the agency. And that was a difficulty, even though I had been keeping them in the loop and I let them know when it was coming, it was the middle of the pandemic and they didn't have everybody in the workforce. So there was a long wait to get it back after provided hard copy. You can't provide it soft copy. So I had to take it to the post office and mail it off and uh, wait. Seems like it took a week till I got an acknowledgement that it had gotten there. And then I waited quite a while to get it back. And then after the peer review and it came back and the draft had to then go back later for another look. So I had to keep those deadlines in mind, but um. I guess I kind of write probably not a very organized way. I mean, I grew up in the era, of course, of note cards and things like that. And I generally had source material and I had a box for each chapter and I put the material in order and I started writing a document which had every little bit I was using from a particular source. And then I moved them around a little bit to try to make them coherent. So it might not be the most organized way to do it, but in a way, it made me sure that I wasn't missing anything because there were so many different phases to his life. And uh, in the end, I had to not include so many other stories, but I tried to winnow it down to the most important. So you start out with probably twice the amount of information that actually landed in the book. What were some of the things that got left on the editing or cutting room floor that you mm -hmm. can share with us? Anything? <laughs> well, it's hard to remember. I think I 
it was greater amounts of detail about the specifics of his work, more stories about the people they knew. And I tried to winnow that down a little bit, you know, not go into great detail because I could probably write a date book for everything that they did for a certain period of time. And all the classes hit taught and his comments on that. So many letters where there would have been nice material to put in about that, but I chose the material to make the right point and flesh it out. But I often contemplated whether a book of his World War I letters would be good, but we don't have Genevieve's in return. Genevieve would receive his letters and then write a letter of her own to her mother-in-law and include Parker's letters in them. And so then Hitt's parents kept all this stuff. And when Hitt got ill in uh, 1932 and had his heart problems, his father sent everything back to him to remind him of what a career he had had. So we have to thank Hitt's parents for preserving all that material. But just there's a lot of detail about his life Are you going to compile all of this information on some type of uh, database for future researchers? Is there like a central Parker hit database or archive that somebody? There is not. I am working to encourage the people who inherited all the hit material to donate it to the National Cryptologic Museum Library where hits other papers that were given to Khan reside so that others can use that. And They are starting to think about what do we do with all this stuff. So I've been trying to provide suggestions. You seem so personally invested in this story, Mm -hmm. not just because your husband is um, related to Parker Hitt and -hmm. not just because of your career in the NSA, but you dedicate this book to your mother, Shirley Mm -hmm. Miller Hall, who nurtured your interest in history. And I wanted to know how she guided your life into this remarkable career. Well, she credits my interest in history with the program Sunrise Semester when she was breastfeeding me when I was a newborn in 1960, 1961. And uh, she bought Sunrise Semester with me and they were doing British history at the time. And so that's what she credits my interest in British history, which I sort of credit my interest in genealogy to reading all the lines of the kings and queens of England and how they're related. And I started trying to figure, well, I can do that for my family. So I started writing letters to my grandparents when I was 10 saying, well, you know, tell me about your family and started doing the research there. So I just, he feels like he's part of the family. You know, I've read so many of his papers and his diaries and he's so interesting to me and I hope to others. That was historian and author Betsy Smoot speaking with bio member Jennifer Skoog about her biography, Parker Hitt, the father of American military cryptology, published by the University Press of Kentucky in March 2022. We recorded this interview via Zoom on July 8th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.